Now, we 25 years ago, we saw the worst genocide of modern history when almost a million people were slaughtered in Rwanda in just 90 days. It was unbelievable uh, what happened and how quickly it all happened. Well, my next guests are just back from a trip to Rwanda. They're the 2FM presenter, Darren Garrahi, and her father, Eugene Garrahi. Uh, and I believe what you're known now is Darren's dad, as opposed to the other way around. Correct, yeah, and I'm happy with that position. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this is all because of your job and Facebook, etc. How did the trip to Rwanda come about, Darren? Well, actually, it came about through Dad because he knows a man called Eugene Hogan who works alongside Boer with their press and, you know, pushing the, the Boer um, ideas and values out there. And so Dad knew him. And so he rang Dad and said, look, I was in the Boer offices today. And we're talking about this year's trip. And usually we bring someone along to, to push it. And one of the girls in the office said, well, Darren Garrahi shows her dad a lot on Instagram. And they seem to have a good rapport and good crack and he seems to, to be a bit of fun. So why don't we bring both of them? So uh, Eugene rang this Eugene. So that was Eugene Hogan rang Eugene Garrahi and said, are you up for it? So dad rang me and I think dad thought that maybe I mightn't be up for it initially. I, I don't know, I, just because things are busy for me, I suppose. And I said, no brainer, let's do it. Let's absolutely yeah. do it. So that was back in March. And so we're home now about, about two weeks and uh, a good few years ago, I had done a charity trip with dad to Romania. Um, and so I knew what he was like in those situations, in those sensitive scenarios. He has an unbelievable ability to, to know exactly what to say, when to say it. You know, because it, it's tough, the, the, the things you're dealing with and the, the topics you're talking about. I hope it follows through today, by the way. Yeah, no pressure, no pressure. So he was the perfect person to go right. with. Do you remember that in 1994? Oh, I do, vividly. And I think uh, maybe, like, communications wasn't as swift at yeah. the time because we didn't have social media. But, of course... BBC, RTE, all those covered us. So we were seeing it maybe a couple of days later. And of course, uh, I think Mary Robinson was instrumental in bringing it into all our homes. So it was, it was, it was, it was awful. In, in a couple of, it was essentially the majority turned on the minority. Yeah, it was um, the Hutus that turned on the Tutsis. But of course, Marine, there's, there's a lot of history. Um, the African nations are complicated. And, you know, when the Europeans pulled out, they left straight lines as borders. I mean, the natural borders were rivers and oceans. And, you know, I don't know how many decades are to go by before these things will, if they ever, you know. And even in, um, in Rwanda, where you have the president there as a leader for 25 years, and now you have the Tutsis and Hutus living in rural areas side by side. And they did go through the community courts. And, of course, uh, a lot of people ended up in prison. A lot of people, thousands, died in prison before, prior to the courts. But um, they're living beside each other now. And I just um, hope, but, you know, I just have these feelings that, you know, it hasn't the, the, gone the, away. the lid is mm. on it, you know. And, yeah, uh, there was an account of a woman who lost all of her children. Uh, and she... Lived beside. Yes. Yeah. Tell me that. So we met on on day one of our trip. We met the families who had received cows this year. But then the second day, as a kind of you know, for comparative purposes, we met families who had received their cows four and five years ago. And one woman had received hers uh, four years ago. She lost her husband and eight of her children. 
and she now has four cows. So what happens is the in-calf heifers go over and they're given to a family. And when they, they have their calf, if it's a female, they have to pass it on to another family. And, yeah. so, and so on. Um, so she had four at this stage. But she lives in the same village as the people who killed her family. And she was she was an unbelievably proud woman, wasn't she, Dad? And she, she kind of, she said, you know, ultimately I'm the winner. You know, because they have to walk by my house every day and see my four cows, my my chicken coop of three hundred, my my banana. Another entrepreneur today. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. another. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. obviously she was still so hurt and and unbelievably sad, but she said that ultimately she's the winner because they have to look at what she, how she's come out the other side, and that I she think survived. it's also the the natural animal instinct to survive. Yeah. You know, and um, it's unbelievable. I mean, we get a lot of publicity in Ireland about farming and uh, carbon footprint and all of that. Yeah. It's incredible to think what one cow can do uh, for a family and for a neighbouring family. And strangely enough and beautifully enough, it's the community that decide who gets the cow when it Is arrives. It? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah they have meetings and it's the most vulnerable and needy and people maybe that's the widows that suffered most yeah. uh, and then that's decided by the community. But you know, I remember when I was growing up in Doolan in the, in the 60s, I think, you know, there was a lot of feeling when we were in Rwanda that it resembled a lot of rural Ireland back then and maybe a little bit before my time, maybe also in the 40s, when the creameries started in rural Ireland. I mean, the independence that the cow and the chicken, the post from the creameries gave to mothers in particular um, was was just, it, it was palpable. And that came home to us again in Rwanda. Mm. You know, so whereas, uh, you know, intensive farming in Ireland gets now because of climate change and etc. Yeah. It's a lot of bad press. I think it's important to remember that it has given Ireland, rural Ireland, yeah. a really stable, sustainable living. Right. Yeah. Yes, I suppose changes have to come, possibly, but we are a very small country in the overall scale of things. Yeah. Uh, was this your first time going into straight third world stuff? Yes, yeah, first time ever. How did you? How did you? How did you deal with it? Um, and how did they deal with you? Well, while I was there, I didn't. I, we just kind of did it. We just did it. We met the people, and you know, you kind of go over. And someone actually wrote to me on Instagram beforehand. And I kind of got a bit defensive when I initially got her message because she basically said, Darren, I see you're going to Rwanda and I just want to send you this article and it's about white privilege and it's about white people going to third world countries and painting this picture of we are the heroes who are making this massive difference and, you know, taking pictures of the gorgeous kids and maybe necessarily you haven't asked for permission to do that and all this. That's what the article was on about. And when I read it, I kind of went, I know that already. I'm not going to do that. But in a way, I was delighted to have read it because it did... Every every time I kind of thought, oh, maybe I'll put up this this picture or whatever, you kind of go, no, we're here to do something small, to make a small difference. We're not moving mountains. Um, we're probably going to take more from it even than than they will, the people will, um, because they have so little and they are happy with so little. And I think it's very important, you know, from being in Romania. We went to Romania for 20 years and our, my, my three daughters, Avian, Alva um, and Darren and my wife Claire also travelled to Romania and basically we were project managing uh, large handicapped institutions and closing them down and creating group homes where the people would live with um, house mums and stuff like that. Mm. But uh, I think it's very important to realise that uh, yes, we can do a small bit. Everybody does a small bit, but you know, unfortunately we can't change the world. 
Yeah. But I think it's important we're not going out there as heroes at Darren said, but we can do a little bit when we get the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, that's about it. I, I suppose uh, that what was the most poignant thing I, now when I read that story, the living between with the killers who killed our children, oh like it's very, very hard. To it see is, how and that's that a, that's a deep be. story, Marion. But I tell you, two things um, kind of struck me when I went out there. You're talking about sustainability. Yeah, they live off the earth, whether it's trees, bananas, nuts, uh, shrubs, root uh, shrubs. There is no waste. There is no packaging. There's no papers, you know, and there's no dogs. No yeah. dogs. Yeah, you can't Because feed a dog them. will yeah. eat as much as a human. So yeah. there's no dogs. So if you look at, and it's also reminded us, and Darren and I discussed this, of the fragility of, you know, we always hear that if you have climate change, it's the weakest in society to yeah. change. Any climate change with these people, you'd end up with, uh, you know, starvation. Yeah. Right. Um, we had. Um, Chris in, oops, excuse me, uh, Chris O'Hara, artist in um, just a couple of guests before you, so to speak. And he took a hammering. Well, he made the hammering in the crash. You did too. Absolutely, yeah. 2010, Christmas 2010, I'll never forget it. But I happened to bump into Chris when he was outside the door. There was, oh, did we have you? something hmm. in common. I remember I went to uh, Doolin on one of the weakest days after that because it was traumatic for our family. But we were lucky because I had another business to go to. It was the Doolin to Iron Ferries and then we started Dublin Bay Cruises. We were lucky. You know, if you can be lucky in a time like that. But I was saying to Chris out there, somebody said to me on one of my weakest days in Doolin, and he said, Eugene, you have a great future ahead of you if you do one thing and that's lose your ego. Get rid of the ego and start again and you'll be fine. And what do they mean by that? Because people feel shame mm. if they fail, so to speak? Of course there was that. I mean, we're Ireland's like that. I mean, I often heard, like, if you're going up a hill in a bicycle in a race in the States, people will give you a hand up along. Yeah. But in Ireland, they'll stick a, um, a, a stick in the spoke and knock you off. So not, we everyone, not, not, every, not everyone. Not everyone. <laughs> but, uh, so we were conscious of that. So you, we just, you know, you have to, you have, you have a family, so you have to get up and go again if you right. can. Right. It's not always easy. Yeah. Uh, we were lucky enough. Well, I mean, it's amazing that you can look at it and say that you were lucky enough because you had a very good business. I had a good business uh, for 28 years in Dublin. And uh, it was just that, it, uh, you know, uh, we did a lot of capital works for the state and stuff like that. So those budgets just dried up. And right. I was. Uh, Okay. Sorry, can I interject there really quick? He says lucky. His mom, my mom and, and him, they have an unbelievable drive and ability to pick themselves up and dust themselves off because you have to you have to have that as well. Absolutely. You luck. have it yourself. What time are you getting up at these mornings? <laughs> Half four. Half four. Ah, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for two of them breakfast. So it's going well. It's going well. Okay, well, listen, thanks uh, to the pair of you for coming in. I'm just watching my clock yeah. here. 